Welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast, where we explore how all can achieve healthier, longer, and more fulfilling lives. For more podcasts and videos, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com. For today's episode, we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Greg Bailey, co-founder and CEO of Juvenescence, a biotech company focusing on preventing age-related diseases. Greg will be interviewing Professor Linda Partridge on nutrition and healthy aging. I'll leave the interview to you, Greg. Thank you very much, Laura, for inviting both of us to the call. Um, So I'd like to welcome Dame Linda Partridge to the Longevity Forum, a British geneticist who studies biology and genetics of aging and age-related diseases. Professor Partridge is currently the Weldon Professor of Biometry at the Institute of Healthy Aging, Research Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment at the University College London. She's also the founding director of the Max Planck Institute for Biology of Aging. With a focus on evolutionary conserved diet, genetic pharmacological interventions that can improve health and function during aging. Linda, have you published 586 publications? Is that the accurate number or am I underscoring you? That sounds an awful lot, Greg. I didn't realize it was quite so many. (laughs) It's on the UCL website. Um, I'm sure the audience would be fascinated to hear if you think there's an ideal diet. Well, there are certainly plenty of principal nutritional guidelines out there. I mean, the obvious things are avoid bad stuff. So diets with too little fiber in them or too much salt and sugar. Um, get a good balance of the main macronutrients, so fat, carbohydrate, protein. Eat plenty of fresh vegetables, fruit, and other plant-derived items. And, of course, if you want to save the planet, then reduce or eliminate beef, lamb, and dairy products from your diet. Um, But one size doesn't quite fit all. So, for instance, as people get older, they tend to... um, make vitamin D less efficiently. Um, So they need to increase the amount of of vitamin D that they take. Some of the other trace nutrients as well. Um, They get less good at absorbing protein. Um, And also because of the, you know, the frailty, the muscle weakness that comes with age. Um, There's some evidence that older people should actually increase the amount of protein in their diet, especially if they're facing some sort of challenge like recovery after an illness. And of course, diet alone won't do it. Exercise is vitally important, partly because it's it's part of the energy balance that protects against weight gain and obesity, but also because, you know, it's wonderful for the cardiovascular system. So it's a healthy lifestyle, really, as well as a healthy diet. Yeah, I agree. Fitness is by mental and physical therapy <laughs> where I get to download. You bring up a very interesting point about protein. And I noticed in your research, uh, you'd focused on, I didn't believe, decreasing protein and changing the essential amino acids. Can you describe what you've learned on that? Yes, sure. So it's been known for, for ages um, that simply uh, restricting the amount that animals eat. This was first discovered in, in rodents, but it's since been shown in a huge range of animals, including rhesus monkeys, that you can improve health during aging just by reducing the amount that the animal eats. And over the years, it's become clear that it, it's not just calories that's important here. It's actually what nutrients are taken out of the diet. 
during the dietary restriction. And it turns out that protein is really key there. And protein is a tricky one because it's definitely don't eat too much, don't eat too little. So um, Steve Simpson and his colleagues in Australia showed that uh, if you have a diet that's got too little protein in it, then the animal will overeat the other ingredients to get its its target intake of protein. We all have a, a built-in requirement for a certain amount of protein intake. And if the, the diet's low in it, then we'll overeat the other stuff to get it. So there's an effect on appetite that's very important. But also too much protein um, looks as though it's a risk factor for cancer during aging. So you don't want to eat too much protein either. And people have also, of course, been interested in, well, what is it about the protein? Is it just the sheer amount? And protein is made up of building blocks called amino acids. There's quite a wide range of them. And it turns out there that the best diet for health um, during aging, given that you've got the right amount of protein, is actually to eat a mix of amino acids that more or less reflects your own body composition. So we've looked at this in both flies and in mice. And if we matched the composition of the protein to the composition of the protein that's present in the animal, then that's the best kind of protein for it to eat. So, you know, it's always said, um, you are what you eat. Actually, what you should do is to, you should eat the sort of protein that you are, and that will improve health during aging. <laughs> so it's quite tricky, but I think we understand quite well now what it is about dietary restriction and what it is about protein that's really important. I see the t-shirt, eat what you are. <laughs> so in methionine, is that something you've looked at and feel that it has a role in aging? Well, it, it's very important in all sorts of you know bits of metabolism in the body. It's a key player in, in many different important cellular processes. Should it be restricted? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you restrict methionine to the point where it's limiting in the diet for um, protein usage in the animal, um, then you will start to see a health benefit because it's like restricting protein. But I don't think there's anything particularly special about methionine itself. It's just like any other essential amino acids. So some of these amino acids that are present in protein, we can't make ourselves. We have to get them in the diet. They're called essential. Methionine is one of them. And I think any of these essential amino acids, if you make them limiting, it's like limiting protein. But I'm not sure there's anything particularly special about methionine. Yeah, I know the Harvard group was looking at that. So how does one decide what the right mix of protein is? Is there a food group that you would say this is, you know, the one that is most similar to what constitutes us as humans? Um, well, I guess it's going to be mammalian protein. It, it is going to be most similar to us. But we can, you know, you can get the mix of amino acids that you need um, simply by eating plant protein. And I think there are a lot of other considerations in, in dietary choices of protein. I mean, without going on too much about, uh, you know, climate change and so on, that there is a lot of evidence that big damaging effects on the climate and on vegetation on the surface of the earth is coming from our dietary habits, and particularly eating so much red meat 
and dairy produce. And we can get the key proteins that are present in those parts of the diet from plant sources or from less damaging animal sources. And I think that's worth thinking about too, as well as just the pure nutritional effects of different kinds of food. Very exciting area, particularly as they're beginning to create the faux meats and, and agronomics. Um, you've done a great deal of research on the effect of diet and Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and sleep. Any key takeaways for the audience? Oh, well, I think the key takeaways are that as, as people get older, their sleep quality deteriorates. This is just in normal, healthy, aging humans, not people with dementia necessarily. So what happens is that uh, sleep bouts get shorter. People wake up more often during sleep at night, and they also tend to nap during the day. And there's quite a lot of evidence now that um, you can improve that in uh, laboratory animals. Um, by simply tamping down the activities of the systems in the body that respond to nutrients. So that this whole nutrient sensing signaling network that's present in all of us and is very important in determining so many aspects of metabolism and health. And if you just very slightly tamp down its activity during aging, and you can actually do this uh, with drugs as well as um, in other ways with diet, uh, what you find is that you can stop that deterioration in sleep quality as aging goes on. I mean, we've actually done this in, in fruit flies, but these systems are very conserved across the animal kingdom. So I think there are good treatments there for, for preventing age-related sleep deterioration. And there's a lot of evidence that that alone would actually improve people's health. Um, there's rather little evidence that we can do much with diet once somebody has Alzheimer's disease, apart from making sure that they do eat properly because one of the effects of Alzheimer's is that people often just stop eating. Which drug and which nutrients are sort of the keys to sleep? That you Is it dampened down just general calories, or is it specific food groups that one should modify for sleep, and which drug? Well, the drug is rapamycin or serolimus, as it's often known clinically. Um, it was a drug that was actually discovered on Easter Island in the soil that wow. was produced by microbes. And its main um, clinical uses are to prevent uh, restenosis after cardiac surgery, um, rejection of transplants, particularly kidney transplants. And it's sometimes used as a chemotherapeutic in cancer as well. It's a very interesting drug because it's the first drug that's really been shown to combat the effects of aging in mammals. So it extends lifespan in mice and produces quite widespread health improvements during aging. And what we found in flies was that it improves sleep quality during aging. So it goes for the part of the nutrient sensing network that's particularly important in detecting protein in the diet, interestingly. <laughs> but it's a fascinating drug. You know, I think it going forward, it, it's one of the most interesting that we have. Clearly left by the aliens when they visited Easter Island and did the statues. <laughs> Absolutely, every water. <laughs> it's called rapamycin. Because the original name for Easter Island is actually Rapa Nui. Ah, yes. So that's where the name came from. A fascinating story and how it was discovered. You've done ex extensive research on dietary and caloric restriction, but what fascinated me when I was reading some of your papers is you were looking for specific nutrients that would induce dietary restriction. Um, did you find nutrients that we can all do so we don't have to starve ourselves and we'll just gracefully do caloric restriction? 
Well, I think the most um, effective appetite suppressor is protein in the diet. You know, there's, as I mentioned earlier, if there's too little protein, animals and people um, tend to overeat. And by making sure there's enough, you can effectively um, suppress appetite. There's actually been some recent work on, you know, how the um, level of different nutrients that people or or animals take in um, is determined by their early development. So we have these um, sensors of nutrients in the food, chemical sensors, the olfactory and taste system, um, which detect food and also are important in inducing satiety after a certain amount's eaten. And there's been some uh, research over the years showing that if an animal is given a lot of protein, a lot of sugar, a lot of salt in its diet when it's young, then it tends to overeat those things when it's older. It has a a stronger wish to consume those nutrients. And somebody's figured out in flies how that works. So if you give young flies a lot of sugar in their diet, it actually affects the way that these taste receptors develop. So what you do is to blunt the sensation of sugar if you eat a lot of it when you're young. So when you're old, you have to eat more in order to believe that you have enough sugar. And so the system leads to overeating and obesity. So there's some very interesting developmental effects there with sensing particular nutrients. So it's really important, I think, to suspect what's eaten during childhood in determining adult food preferences. I mean, of course, there are huge other influences there, but just the real physiology of taste seems to be set during development. That's really important. So I'm absolved of any um, guilt about my current diet and simply can blame my parents. (laughs) Um, I think we are running out of time. Is there anything that you feel that, you know, you would like to pass on to the audience, importance about nutrition, something that they, an actionable item that they can do as a parting shot? I think the recent work on intermittent fasting is very interesting so when people have tried experimentally with humans um, to do a, just a dietary restriction regime, to, to just take down the diet, the amount eaten and keep it down, um, they found what we all know about ourselves, I think, which is this, it's extraordinarily difficult to show the level of self-discipline necessary to do that. And actually, the fallout rate from the study was huge. Very few individuals managed to get through it, and they could only implement about a 10% reduction in food intake. But what people do seem to be able to do more easily is intermittent fasting. And that seems to recapitulate many of the effects of dietary restriction. So I think that we need a lot more experimental work with people. But if it's easier to comply with, and if it's as good as dietary restriction in terms of its health effects, then I think it could be a very important uh, bit of advice that will be given to people about their diet as time goes by. That, that's fantastic advice. It also noted when I was looking at intermittent fasting, they said that um, the mice did, who did very well were in labs as opposed to wild mice because of the temperature. If it was a cool temperature, intermittent fasting worked better than a warm temperature. Had you seen that? Yes, and I mean, there's been a question about that with dietary restriction for a long time as well. 
whether if you keep the animals, um, you know, to more neutral temperature from their body temperature point of view, they would still show all of the benefits of dietary restriction. I think the jury's still out on that one, but it may be very important. Interesting. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Dame Linda Partridge, for, for uh, spending time with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum. For more podcasts and information on Longevity Week, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.